Before we start our Ricardos on the telly. You've been on a couple of times, haven't you, Rich? Yes, yeah, a couple of times recently. Yeah, we've done. Uh, well, we've gone over to the central local central news, so uh, ITV local. Have an eco garden there with their environmental correspondent Colin Green. So he invited us over to do a bit of a spiel about a bog garden, and uh, more recently about composting. So um, we had a little look at the can of worms at a big landfill site in the Midlands. Fantastic! If you want to have a look at that, you can go to www.itvlocal.com forward slash central and you'll see two videos on the eco garden a composting one and a bog garden one and ricardo's in them i bet they don't have music like ours though Wiggly Wigglers is based on Lower Blakemere Farm in rural Herefordshire and this podcast is the story of that company and life behind the scenes at Wiggly's and on the farm. I'm Heather Orange. I'm Richard. And I'm Farmer Phil. I wonder what your second name is then. A fishborn. Is it? <laughs> fishborn, yeah, but no one ever knows my second name. Oh, you're Richard, aren't you? Yes, yes. Richard, uh, Richard what? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, and no, of no. course Farmer Phil's second name is Phil Because his first name is Farmer, Farmer. We, <laughs> <laughs> we have got lots coming up on this week's show We've got Patrick Holden, Director of the Soil Association With a message for Farmer Phil Ah, uh, good And we've got the biggest news that we've had for weeks and weeks Wigglies have won a mousy A mousy yeah. Now come on. That's almost more... as big a news as the fact that I've caught six mouses underneath my desk this week. <laughs> really? I hope you used a really humane mouse trap. I, I used my oh, oh, trusty, <laughs> trusty, um, whatever they are, little nipper. Yes. Yeah. Right. I shall say this again. You've got a rodent infested home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've forgotten to mention that. <laughs> Just under your foot. Oh, excellent. Uh, you have cats and it kills all the birds outside. It doesn't do anything with the mice, does it? This on. is a recent <laughs> colonisation. This is due to some bird seed samples resting for a week too long underneath my desk. Oh, I see. Mm. You're right. Right, OK. Right, I shall say this once again for effect. Do you think that they have this trouble at the Oscars? A mousy is the equivalent in the podcast world to an Oscar. We have won the best gardening podcast. Folk have voted for us all over the world. So once again, I'll make this announcement. And I'm expecting an acceptance speech. Welcome, listener, to Wiggly Wigglers. And we are pleased to announce the biggest news for weeks and weeks. Wiggly Wigglers has won this year's best gardening podcast, Mousy. Hey, great. <laughs> oh, Rich, don't burst what, it's, into uh, it's tears, mate. Yeah, don't it's great, cry. It? It's really cool, and I'm glad people have voted for us. And it's actually it's great fun to have won something. For us. In fact, that's you being into your awards. I mean, it's taken you this, this long, really, to be able to, to generate an award for this particular element of Wiggly Wigglers. But yeah, no, it's cool. It's really cool. <laughs> well, we've had lots of feedback from listeners, but first of all, Phil, can you open our equivalent to champagne? I can. It's Plastic cups. Nice, yeah. <laughs> Sophisticated <laughs> stuff. No label on the bottle. Unlabeled bottle. <laughs> Non-alcoholic. 
What, what and is this, this? What is this is little black stuff that you'll pour in from there? This is good stuff, this is. This uh-huh. is pixley berry juice. Right. So a local Herefordshire farmer. Oh, OK. Um, actually, they grow the berries for innocent smoothies. Do you they? Know, the, the drinks yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, Sarah buys and, um, so And if you go to B- pixley berries... <laughs> <laughs> of course, he's tight. Um, pixleyberries.co.uk, you can see all about them. The great thing about this stuff is that it hasn't got any additives in it. It is the real... So it's just pure berry. The real thing. Pure berry. So you have to make it a little bit stronger than some of the more recognised products Michael, would you like a little little cup? That's fine. Anyway. All right, excellent. It does look... It looks glorious when it came out of the bottle. Right, should we have a taste? Where's mine, then? Oh, you can't can't have any. Yes, pass it over. There you are. Right. Cheers. 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 Congratulations. May your taters never fester. Mm. Mm. Isn't that lovely? It's very nice. Do you know what that tastes just like? Black currants. Is it? Black currants. <laughs> that would be because it's black currant juice. <laughs> it is. It's very nice. That tastes a damn sight better than Ribena. That's a sure fact. Colleen from InTheGardenOnline.com organised the awards, and on Monday she's going to put the comments up. Right. that we've had from our listeners. OK. <laughs> so you best go and have a look at that. Yeah. Brace yourself, Rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and well done to Garden Rant, because they won everything else, as far as I can see. <laughs> well done, Amy. Here's what a few of our listeners said. Mark said, well done, Hev, rock on. Simon said, congratulations from me as well. Keep up the good work so that I can continue to escape the office, albeit virtually, and for only half an hour. And Angie says, just a short note to let you know how much I've been enjoying your podcast. Your laughter and sense of humour is so refreshing. Makes me want to laugh all day long. (laughs) And me. Um, I'm still catching up on past episodes, but due to the podcast, I'm considering some worm composting on our grain farm in central Illinois, USA. In this day and age, it's nice to hear from folks that are conscious of the environment, but yet are not gung-ho fanatic organic followers. Hmm. Some of us might be, Colleen. I strongly align with the views of Farmer Phil. However, However, is he IBM or Mac? How's that for a short note? He's IBM. I'm proud of it. No, I replied to her. I I said, thanks, thanks, Angie. Poor old Farmer Phil may not be PC, as in politically correct, but he is PC in the computer world. Ah, well, you can't have everything in a man. (laughs) I'm afraid there's another reply there, which I won't read. Oh, okay, I will. Uh, You should be grateful he doesn't waste money on good-looking technology and stick with the just-as-good but less-than-half-price PC. Oh, pick the bones out of that. Says Simon, trying not to start a religious computer war, (laughs) smiley. That's okay. That won't be in the podcast because Michael will edit it out. But thank you so much for your comments. Mac rules, and I love Steve Jobs. Moving on. (laughs) On the subject of soft drinks, Mm. which we were, and Victoria says to me, Kia Ora, which I thought was um, a rather um, revolting Coca-Cola soft orangey drink that Monty asks for in the garage. But actually, it's Maori for Be Well. So she says, Be Well, Heather. I'm just listening to this week's podcast, which I do before checking my email, obviously. And I heard my name being read out as the winner of your competition. 
I stop the podcast to leap about the house in joy, <laughs> ring my sister and my parents to boast and to check for your email so that I can send you my address details. Thank you so much. I've been listening to your podcast since April when my husband gave me an iPod Nano for my birthday and I've been addicted ever since. I particularly enjoy the discussions between Farmer Phil and Ricardo. Instead of don't mention the war, it is obviously don't mention the hedgerow wiggly wigglers. Well, all the cats really, is it? And then I'll get Rich to read the next paragraph out because it's all about the wildlife in her garden. And for those listeners that are trying to catch up with what I'm saying, she has won, Victoria has won the competition about the penguins, which you can listen to in podcast 82. Hello, Victoria. Uh, Just to read your your, paragraph that Heather's handed over to me, what you've said is, it is fascinating to hear of the work you are doing to encourage wildlife habitat in Britain. New Zealand has had to be a lot more proactive in terms of protecting its wildlife. The native wildlife is not coping at all well with all the introduced species that have arrived here in the last 200 years. I live in a suburb away from one of New Zealand's mainland islands the Karora Wildlife Sanctuary, a square mile of regenerating native forest that has been surrounded by a predator-proof fence. This keeps out the 14 species of non-native mammals that are eating their way through New Zealand's native species and allows endangered birds, lizards and flora to re-establish stable populations in that small area. The great thing is that once the population is stable and increasing, it's used to reseed other mainland islands throughout New Zealand. For some of the more successful bird populations, such as Tui, it also means some individuals are leaving the sanctuary naturally and setting up breeding sites in nearby native bush. For people like me who have designed their garden to be native bird friendly, this is a reward indeed. Fantastic. You have some really pertinent stuff there. We were just having this discussion, weren't we, about the, uh, the, the way that Australia and New Zealand have suffered as a consequence of human activity, really. You know, us taking in these alien species. Um, and I mean, a couple of things spring to mind. We always t- talk about cats, you know, and there are certainly populations of feral cats in New Zealand and Australia that have had devastating effects on the wildlife. But there are also interesting things like wasps, for instance. Now, wasps, we've taken wasps over there with our food and whatnot when Europeans went over there and started to colonise. And whereas here, even though they're a pest, they are significant. You know, they play a big role in in natural uh, pest control. Over there, they do things like compete for tree saps, for tree honeydews and things like that, that native species of parrots and and even flightless birds need in order to build up their body reserves and whatnot in order to breed and things like that, because obviously the wasps are kind of stinging them and and frighten them away from those areas that they should be feeding on, that they rely on feeding on. And also, interestingly, stoats. We've talked about this before. Stoats are a a species in decline in this country. Fantastic little animal. But in the wrong situation, I mean, New Zealand, they thrive, you know, in their millions. And, of course, they're just wiping out all the ground-nesting birds. Like, you know, the brown kiwi is in such decline now, but mainly as a consequence of all these other things. And also irresponsible dog owners, you know, letting their dogs run through the bush and killing these, these poor little flightless birds that can't get away from it. But what are you going to do about it? Because this happens all over the world. You know, for example, the New, New Zealand flatworm has come over with plants here. Yeah. And that's wiping out all was wiping out our native earthworm. Actually, I think maybe the numbers are a little more balanced the last time I heard. But 
It's the way of the world. It's the way of the world. It's a, it's the way of the world that, that unfortunately that we've brought about, and as a and as a as a consequence, we are responsible for, for uh, you know changing that as well and and making the differences. So it is important for us to res- be res- take responsibility for our actions and do things like preserve areas, like she was saying, to, to make sure that there are certain species that can get out into uh, you know in, into the wider countryside. And interesting, New Zealand are also one of the few countries. Cause I've been to New Zealand a couple of times, and it's absolutely beautiful we've got friends down in uh, um, Timaru on the South Island and Tim was in it was from Hereford but uh, Tim's in Timaru Tim's in Timaru yeah, yeah. Oh. and, uh, and uh, they're, they're, there's they're, a song in that they wanted to have their children over there because it's, it's oh no you know, sorry they, that's Tim Chimney Tim Chimney Tim Chimney sorry but, uh, <laughs> but they um, they I mean they have a great lifestyle over there it's, it's more relaxed than ours and uh, and they you know they don't have to the, the property prices aren't just ridiculous like ours are and whatnot, so they they're, they're very set, and they want to have their children over there in a, in a safer, more sort of conducive environment. One of the times I went, I worked as a deckhand on a big game boat in the Bay of Islands of Paia, and uh, they've got lots of marine reserves in New Zealand. Well, not enough, but it, there's absolutely the most amazing evidence that marine reserves really work because what they're able to do is establish an area that commercial fishermen can't come into and the fish the populations of fish just go bonkers and if you go fishing as a rod fisherman in one of these marine reserves the fishing is boring because there are that many fish there but what happens is those species of fish then sort of filter out into the into the wider seas and consequently a lot of those commercial fishermen are able to to tap into those populations so the whole environment is protected um, to, to such a great extent by introducing these these reserves and i think that it seems that that's definitely one of the most effective ways of, of you know of, of propagating and, and making sure that certain species have a chance to survive in the wider community localizing love localizing sure well, we, we've localized everything haven't we? human beings we've localized it and in many respects it's it's you know these local populations that are so important to maintain so from that I was lucky enough to go to the Green Links launch in Hereford, which is a wonderful organisation, which is all about bringing together organisations that are interested in the environment and the future and seeing if they can swap details and trade. Actually, I found a wonderful man who makes um, organic herb cream for your hands. Oh, so right. I'm going to try it out. Yeah, yeah. Let me feel your hands. Like, oh, they're like, a bit rough. A bit rough. They? <laughs> rough. <laughs> Anyway, the speaker at the Green Links launch was Patrick Holden from right. the Soil Association. Right. And I was very pleased to get an interview with him directed specifically to Farmer Phil. Excellent. Pleased to have got with me in a whole food shop in Hereford and any booming sound you hear are Hereford Fair, Patrick Holden, who is, as you all will know, director of the Soil Association. Patrick, thank you very much for coming on the Wiggly Podcast. I know that you haven't listened in, but welcome anyway, um, because Farmer Phil, uh, who's my husband, is not an organic farmer. No, I think you just told me that, which is interesting, because I, I think one of the issues that the Soil Association is facing at the moment is that some non-organic farmers are quite irritated with the way that we are saying that, you know, the problems of pesticides and antibiotic use, and they feel that we're we're, uh, deliberately polarising the debate between conventional and organic farming, when they rightly point out that in their hearts, all farmers want to be stewards of the land and care about the environment and everything else. But I think your husband, Phil, needs to think about this, namely that within about 20 years, 
fossil fuel depletion. In other words, we're just reaching the peak of fossil fuel use and thereafter, whenever it peaks, maybe 20, uh, 2010, maybe this year, we're going to have 3% less oil every year. Fast forward that to the 2020s. We're going to have less than half of what we've got today. The price is going to triple. And nitrogen fertiliser, upon which the whole of conventional agriculture is based, is going to price itself out of the market. And if that doesn't happen, there's another train coming to hit us, and that is that the manufacturer of nitrogen fertiliser uses a lot of uh, natural gas and unfortunately also emits a lot of NO2, which is the byproduct, which is very, very climate unfriendly. So I think that for those two reasons, anybody who's involved with non-organic farming needs to realise that within not very long, I think they're going to have to change. And it's not a criticism of non-organic farming, it's just a new reality that's coming at us anyway. So let's start to adapt to it. Adapt to it. So... Tell me a bit about this nitrogen production because he will defend this as part of the need to grow grass and part of the way that he farms. And the fact is that he would say, if he were here, sorry Phil, (laughs) I'm giving a lovely time, um, that organic farming relies on non-organic farming. For example, he's a specialist seed grower. And we were at David Wilson's farm last week at Highgrove, and it was a wonderful inspiration of organic farming. And my husband, Phil, was really, really inspired, especially by the idea of keeping rare breeds and and doing something sustainable. And yet, a lot of organic farmers rely on non-organic seed. And what's your answer to that? Well, we're in transition because the EU regulation and the Soil Association standards require that farmers should use organic seed wherever it's available. But if it isn't available, like a, you know, a, an unusual heritage variety or something like that, which simply isn't being grown organically, they can get what's called a, a special derogation to use non-organic seed. But I would say that all of us are going to have to... I mean, you're making a point against organic farming. Let me make some more. We're very dependent on fossil fuels too. We use tractors. Interestingly, 50% of all the world's food is still produced using draft animals. I just heard that the other day. What an extraordinary statistic. And I think that all of us are going to have to rethink the way we grow and distribute our food, and that includes organic farmers within the next 15 or 20 years. I think the way to look at this is that during the last 100 years, the whole of humanity has been on a fossil fuel energy spree. And fossil fuel, after all, is the results of biological activity itself. It's a sort of algae goo which has you know been stored beneath the earth's crust but we've used the accumulated earth capital energy of 150 million years in a hundred years and the party's nearly over and we are going to have to adapt to a post-fossil fuel era it's going to be tough but we don't want to just think about it as giving things up we want to compensate for our reduced mobility because flying is going to become a luxury and a rare expensive luxury at that and I suspect we're going to have to tighten our belts because I think that the stock market is going to be affected by all this. But let's compensate by a richer cultural, social life, hopefully based on a good food culture, where we are. And I think that's where sustainable agriculture comes in. We're all going to benefit from, uh, hopefully in the farming community as well, from the shift in that direction because localism is going to be the name of the game. I have to ask you this because... I mean, you must have been thrown this question a trillion, squillion, billion times. But the thing is, you lot, the Soil Association, have encouraged us to import food 
that's organic rather than feed ourselves locally and now you're changing your tune well, what have you got to say to that young man well, well that's very flattering <laughs> 56 and, and going on 70 <laughs> actually it was Eric Booth who's still employed by us who dreamt up the idea of local food links in his bath well, that's, the, that's how the story goes, back in the 80s. So we led on local food a long time ago. It's certainly true that people who are committed to buying organic food, when faced with the choice of saying buy, buying a heavily sprayed apple from a local orchard or an imported apple from South America, have got an issue. And it's a trade-off, isn't it? You know, if the agriculture is relatively intensive and there may be some environmental issues from the local product versus the organic import, what do you do? Well, my answer is you make a case-by-case choice. But what we really want is local food, which is also sustainably produced. And I'm sure your husband, Phil, is doing a lot for the environment. He's part of the LEAF scheme. I know that that means, by definition, he cares about the green fringes. But I would say that the real battle for biodiversity and sustainability is in the farmed area, not just around the edges. And I think he's going to have to not just turn down the volume on his pesticide spray, but actually throw it away within the next few years, because agrochemicals, which make all these pesticides and fertilizer, will simply price themselves out of the market. In your opinion, why have you, you've, you've said to me that, you know, organic farmers are using fossil fuels. What is the absolute crux of the problem with regard to nitrogen? Because I haven't quite got it, that in my head. Well, it's first of all a dependency on natural gas or fossil fuels generally for fixing the nitrogen. Hugely energy intensive to fix it. Secondly, the byproduct, nitrous oxide, which is a greenhouse gas. And thirdly, when you put nitrogen fertiliser on the soil, you depress the soil biology, that very complex mix of bacteria and fungal life upon which the plants, from which the plants derive their nutrition. So you're actually putting into reverse the very systems which the plant roots themselves have developed over millennia for sustaining themselves. And in the case, for instance, of clover, which is um, what I rely on to fix my nitrogen, if you start using nitrogen fertiliser on grass, it depresses the clover. And if you use more than, excuse me for talking technical, 200 kilograms per hectare, you won't have much clover because the clover can't stand the competition. So I think what's, what, what one needs to do is to farm with the grain of nature and let nature be our teacher. If we can do that, then it's amazing how obviously we're intervening. I mean, all farming is intervention. We're not just leaving it to permaculture and climax forest although there are some people who believe in that but I think we we have to far more intensively than that but I do think we have to go more with the grain of nature in the 21st century. I don't know if you've had a chance to see um, Susie Emmett's article in this week's Farmers Weekly but it was all about the fact is you farmers who are taking advantage of the food miles campaign that Kenyan farmers are will have a desperately bad time if we don't eat green beans. Very interesting. I was in Rome, Air Miles. Should I be flying to Rome to go yep. to an FAO conference? I think so. Uh, that's another discussion. And 
two people from the FAO came up to me. This was on last Saturday. FAO? Food and Agriculture Organization. It's the sort of UN of um, food and farming, really. Okay. And I would say that historically they've been pretty unreconstructive in green and sustainability terms. Yeah. But the world's changing. And the guy who chaired the conference came from the Renata Kunast, she of the German Minister of Agriculture under the Red Green Alliance. Her one of her officials, who's a very green chap, is now Under Secretary of the Environment for the FAO. He chaired a conference on organic farming and food security. And I got the feeling at that conference there was a seismic shift going on in people's attitude towards all these issues, towards trade and food. I think we even need to rethink the conditions for trade. So whereas today the G8 say that African nations need to trade their way out of poverty in food commodities. Tomorrow, I think there needs to be a policy of national self-sufficiency for food. And yes, there will be trade in food. There'll be tea, coffee and bananas and things that we would like to import, but hopefully it'll be sea freighted. But I don't personally think that there is a case for air freighting anything from one country to another. Now, I was lobbied by two people from the FAO so who said to me, look, do you realise what the social and economic consequences of banning air freight, which is the Soil Association is discussing at the moment, are on these farmers who have got a lifeline here uh, to trade themselves out of poverty. And I agree that that's an issue, but I think we have to face it that air freighting is going to be history quite soon. It's just a fact. And secondly, I think we have to be honest with ourselves and say that mostly these um, import systems are owned and controlled by corporate multinationals who get most of the money. I'm not saying it all goes to them, but by and large it's not really about in supporting the indigenous communities. It's much more likely to be a profit centre for one of the exporters. So it's a debate, and I said to them, for goodness sake, lobbyists, because we need to hear these views, but I think we're right to move away from air-freighted food. But in your mind, the future for you, say 2020 for our farm is diversified in terms of crop rotation and different crops and also in terms of animals so our quality of life is going to be fantastic it's going to be brilliant and i think it's like the way i see it it's like a preparation it's now 2007 by the 2020s things are going to be tough i think we're going to look back then and think why did we not start preparing earlier for this resilient much more localised economy, not just food and farming, but energy, transport, education, health, absolutely everything. But without food and farming, we're in deep trouble. And that means rethinking our whole relationship with our local markets. For instance, I don't know how many abattoirs there are around the edge of Hereford. They're probably some have closed. In the old days, there used to be horticultural producers in a sort of latticework around every market town. A lot of those have gone. During the 20th, 20th century, we've destroyed most of the local infrastructure which enabled towns uh, to be self-sufficient. We've got to put it back. We've got 10 to 15 years. There's an urgency about this. Our children won't thank us if we don't start now. Do you know what? When we were at Highgrove, on the trailer, I had this mega moment, and I realised that the biggest argument that Farmer Phil and I have had in our 16 years marriage, it's not been money, it's nothing like that, it has been organic or non-organic. And it came to me on the trailer ride. 
I need to focus on my son, Monty. He's 10 years old, and there's only one way that he's going to be, as far as I can see, and that is sooner or later, our farm will be organic. So if you're listening, Farmer Phil... (laughs) (laughs) Well, he's obviously a man with a discerning eye, if I might say so. Thank you, darling. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this is not about polarised debate between conventional organic farmers. It's about us all facing up to the reality that life as we know it is going to change and sustainable development is the future. So I, I wish your son, Monty, all, all luck, and I hope that he can, perhaps he can join you to persuade his dad to rethink his farming. Come on, Farmer <laughs> Phil, come on. Thank you, Patrick, very much. He certainly puts a good argument up, Phil. He's a very eloquent man, isn't he? Have you got a reply? Of course I've got a reply. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all knew the answer to that question. Yeah. I think it's very important, though, to remember he'd got a lot of very valid points. And farming in general has a lot to learn from what people like Patrick Holden have got to say. And that his stressing sustainable farming is important. That's exactly what I agree with. It is crucial to remember that it's no good farming in a way that in 5, 10, 15, 20 years' time it, it knackers the place. We can't do that. And I get the impression he, he, that's his philosophy as well. His comments about energy, I think, are absolutely crucial. But it, it's nothing to do with organic or conventional farming. It, it doesn't differentiate. And the, the cost of energy, whether it be to make nitrogen fertiliser or put fuel in tractors will alter the face of agriculture as and when that cost goes up or alternatives are found. And that's a market forces situation in my mind. So if you agree with him, which you obviously do, why don't you just become an organic farmer? Well, that's because what he was saying in that interview isn't what the Soil Association do and isn't what the organic standard is all about. The Soil Association and the standards that they promote are the most polarised argument in agriculture that I can think of. His comments about polarising how we do things, the Soil Association have single-handedly done that. That, that has been their whole ethos for promoting organic farming. Well, My view, just a minute, how do you make that out? Because if you believe in something, then you have to set best practice in, in operation. So what would you expect them to do? I didn't really say that I didn't expect them to do that. And I don't say that they shouldn't do what they want to do. But what I'm saying is I don't agree with their point of view in some aspects. My view is that the latest research and the latest technology will take account of the environmental consequences of the things that we do, whether that be nitrogen or chemicals, pesticides and so on. And by using the latest technology available to me, I can produce the most food with the least environmental consequences. And the important thing to me is not to go back 50 or 100 years just because it's 50 or 100 years. It's to look at the fact that the compromise that this world is is that we have a number of people who we have to feed. If we were all organic, as per the Soil Association, there would be less food to feed them. So that's a non-starter. So the point is, how do we actually set about producing food What is the best compromise? Now, I believe that somewhere in the middle, using the latest technology, there is the compromise. I'm not saying that it's going to be set in stone for 50 years because obviously things like energy are going to change the face of it. But these things move. There are new technologies coming along. There'll be new ways of doing things. But I don't think going back to a horse and single furrow plough is the answer. In fact, I know it's not. 
What do you say to Patrick's argument that um, it's all very well being a leaf farmer and having environmentally friendly margins, so the edges of the fields and the, the, the wildlife corridors, but where you really have to make a difference is through ha- throughout the crop? I think that's quite a, an interesting little piece of propaganda on his part, really, because, as he well knows, the vast majority of the crops that we grow, conventional or organic, the actual crops themselves are the food source or the habitat and whether they've got weeds in or are grown organically is not really the point. There is a point in terms of the chemicals that we might put on them but as I said the latest chemicals are not harmful to the environment by comparison with the chemicals that we used perhaps 10 or 20 years ago. I'll just bring Richard in in a minute. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll give just bring you some order to sit here and shut up. <laughs> yeah, I'll, yeah. Give you, I'll give you a, a quick example. Our grass seed crops, which are an intensive commercial operation, but they are a fantastic habitat, and the diversity of wildlife that lives within them and then the diversity of wildlife that feeds on them. We have owls, skylarks, we've got all the small mammals, and then there's the insects and so on. And, I mean, I think you said to me once, oh, well, of course, you plaster insecticides across your conventionally grown crops. And when it actually came to it, I was able to say to you that, broadly speaking, the only insecticide we ever use on the crops is to mop up a few aphids in the autumn before the frost kills everything else insect-wise, so that the implications of our insecticide use are tiny. And so it was just this polarised argument, the assumptions the lack of knowledge, and that comes back to the fact that people should buy food from sources that they know, that are grown in a fashion that they understand, and if they don't like it, then they won't buy the food, and the grower will change his or her method. Just as the way the light is coming on the back of your head, I think I can see a halo appearing. (laughs) I haven't been polishing it. Mm. What you can't hear, listener... Is Richard spluttering because Michael's got rid of all those splutters? He's absolutely spitting feathers. He wants to come back in with an argument. Do you, Rich? Not this week. <laughs> <laughs> That's for another day. I'm moving on and now I'm moving to Richard and his buzzy hornets. I'm holding this thing. That close to a hornet, you wouldn't believe. The quarter's now about eight inches away from this hornet. It's feeding on the Catoniaster. And it's just building its nest about ten yards away from where we are. Just to give you an indication of what a wasp sounds like by comparison. We've had an email from Podchef, Neil Foley, over there in the west of the US of A, and he's been very quiet for the last few weeks, and he's on about pigs. Oh, we'll have that in our podcast in a couple of weeks, which is now called Pygmalion. The rain in Spain falls mainly on the plane. If you're feeling guilty... <laughs> Crikey. Crikey. That's it. Uh, That's what he says, isn't it? <laughs> if you're feeling guilty uh, because you didn't vote for us in the Mousy Awards, we were wondering if you would put a review up on iTunes. And here's our latest couple. 
From allotment jewels, she says, no loss of quality, five stars. Been listening to the weekly podcast for ages. It's still great. Sadly, I think I know these people and hope they are like this in real life. I can't stress how great this is to listen to on a busy tube train going to work on a Monday morning. Thank you, Jules. We're not like this in real life, are we? Well, well unfortunately, unfortunately, you are like this in real life. <laughs> if only you could be someone different. That would make, make all our lives so much easier. So much easier. But here's my favourite review. And this is a review of our video podcast, which has gone out on Google Video right. and is still getting 100 views a day. Really? If you could possibly bring that up to a million, that would be lovely. <laughs> Anyway, the review is <laughs> a million a day. <laughs> well, why not? There's, there's a lot of people out yeah, there, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not happy with hundreds. Yeah. So uh, yeah. yes, could you watch it twice, everyone? <laughs> okay, it says five stars, and this is about me and you, Rich. It's right. from Boo Book, and I don't know whether she's a he or a she, so we'll call him Shim. <laughs> See. Jim says, Valerie Singleton and John Noakes, question mark. Okay, I'm showing my age to compare the How to Set Up a Wormery podcast with these greats of the past. But Podcast 81 had all the hallmarks of a creative genius that was Blue Peter. It had cardboard, plastic containers, scissors, livestock and something that had been prepared earlier. I know what it didn't have then. That was some sticky back plastic. Oh, yes, we shall do that no. next time. Absolutely. Thank you, Heather and Ricardo, for this enjoyable educational experience. It brought the likelihood of me having a wormery that bit closer. More please, BB. I reckon it will have put just as many people off. Yeah. <laughs> so does this mean that if Ricardo is now going to be the John Noakes of this outfit, that we can send him on these death def- <laughs> expeditions so I get to oh, throw him out of an aeroplane yeah. yeah. oh, do you remember his bum when bring he went on, down the Cresta Run no John Noakes he went down no. the Cresta Run didn't he Phil he did, on a yeah. bobsleigh and fell off on the big corner and he went down the rest of the bit on his bum and he showed it on Blue Peter oh it was awful oh black and blue Black and blue. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Phil, you want me to do something like that? That's well, I mean, nice, you know, nice. you've obviously, you, you've obviously you lost the argument a minute found, ago that we were having. That's been edited out. <laughs> found sparring ladder, now, listeners. Found They're ladder climbing now. to be an extreme sport. I'm sure we can find something for you. Um, yeah. Yes. Well, uh, Richard and Thumb Phil will once again be in the ring for a boxing tournament. If you remember, last time it was on hedging, this time it's going to be on organics. That will be coming up in a show near you, not so long away, because Richard is still spitting feathers. This is me signing out. They're from Wiggly Wigglers, sat on the Wiggly sofa having a lovely time. And my colleagues are... Richard. From Wiggly Wigglers, surprisingly enough. Are you having a lovely time? I have had a, I've had a lovely time, certainly. Yeah. And Farmer Phil, who's having an equally lovely time. <laughs> it's only Michael that's not enjoying this podcast because he's had to split them up. Never mind, listener, you've missed all that, but it'll be coming again in a podcast near you soon. Bye. Bye. And bye for me.